This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio, FM 98. Hello there. This is Christopher Milke, and I'm your host of Past Perfect. This is CEU Medieval Radio Show in Medieval and Early Modern History and Culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Joining us today is Dr. Estella Weiskreci. Dr. Weiskreci is a researcher at the Institute for Oriental and European Archaeology at the Austrian Academy of Sciences uh, in Vienna. So uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Chris. I'm very happy to be here today. Wonderful. Um, one of the reasons why I wanted to invite you here is um, I was really fascinated um, by your um, research uh, regarding burials, um, particularly uh, in um, medieval Europe, and sort of uh, all the you know <laughs> all the interesting things that ends up and that end up happening to the bodies. Uh, um, you've done a lot of work on excarnation, on evisceration, and on on heart burials. So. Um, if you wouldn't mind, um, could you tell us a little bit about some of the research that you've done on this? What I started with many years ago was Maya burials, but maybe we get back to that later. It was through the Maya burials that I got interested in uh, medieval burials because I thought there might be uh, a good comparative data set. And over 13 years ago, I... I picked a few dynasties to do some research to look for burial patterns, look what happens to bodies. And I focused on the Babenberg dynasty and the House of Habsburg. And I basically entered all the information that I could get into a spreadsheet, you know, and I analyzed every aspect. And that's how I got to all these topics, excarnation, evisceration, heart burial. And I kind of like worked through all of them through the years, you know, and I, I know a lot now about all these medieval burials. And I got, of course, interested through that in, in the Middle Ages, you know, and I, I won't consider my, myself a specialist on medieval ages, but I know a lot about burials and what happens to the bodies. And uh, the most interesting aspect is, to me, not so much what happens to people when they die, you know, exactly at the burial, but what happens to people or to the bodies once they have been buried, kind of like post-funeral life of the bodies. And this has been actually my main research focus. For the listeners back home, um, could you just give us a very short definition of what exactly excarnation and evisceration means um, in relation to a dead body? Well, uh, maybe I should say something before I say that, a little bit about uh, the medieval ideal of burying people. Oh, very that good. Is, that is connected to that issue. So you have this ideal in the Middle Ages to be buried as a full body in the flesh, you know, so you can actually be resurrected. And what has fascinated me from the very first day of the research is the fact that although you have this ideal, what really happens is quite different. So there's a a framework actually within uh, that people operate and they're trying to bend the rules and the norms all the time. And what you can say is that there is an ideal way to bury and there is a way to bury which is highly improper and that is cremation. You cannot really in the Middle Ages cremate the body because that would be a punishment, you know, that would hinder a resurrection of the soul. That's what was done to heretics and to criminals, you know. So you have this 
mode of life, you know, it's very mobile, especially among aristocrats. People are traveling a lot, and then they have this idea. They have tombs sometimes somewhere. They have founded monasteries, and they want to be buried at these places. But then they die hundreds of kilometers away or even thousands of kilometers away, you know, and then they need to be brought back to the place of burial. And that's how these mortuary customs arose, because you couldn't transport a fresh corpse because it would rot immediately, especially when it was warm and you were somewhere in the Mediterranean area. But you couldn't cremate it either because it was just not possible. So you had to come up with ideas what to do with the bodies. So the most simple ways, and that was was done already probably in the 7th century, was just to, to put some ointments on the body, you know, some nice smelling oils, you know, but that didn't, didn't go very far. The Merovingians tried that. And then you can see uh, the first evisceration happening in the 8th and 9th centuries, that's when they cut open the bodies and they take out the trails, you know, and the heart sometimes, and then the transport bodies. But still, it, it didn't really work. And there are some very nice accounts how it didn't work with um, Emperor Charles the Bald, who, who died in the Alps, you know, and then was transported over hundreds of kilometers and really started to smell very bad. And then they had to bury him in Mantua. And only much later, he was exhumed and brought to Paris, where he was supposed to be buried at Saint-Denis. And later then, they, they, you know, when it was short distances, embalmment could work, but not for a thousand kilometers, you know, when somebody died, for example, during a crusade. So that's how they invented excarnation. They started to boil the bodies and, in order to deflesh them, and then they could bring back the bones. On a lot of um, very interesting, you know, topics and ideas that you mentioned up there. I mean, one of the funny things, um, like building off of what you said about Charles the Bald, um, I mean, if um, a particular chronicler didn't like a particular king, you know, it's almost sort of um, with glee how they tell uh, what happened to the body after the death, you know, whether, you know, the king's corpse was so bloated that, you know, it burst when they tried to stuff it into the coffin. I think that was for um, uh, William... It was either for William the Conqueror or for um, Henry the First of England. I can't remember. I think Henry the First has a very bad story too. Yeah, I, I can't remember the details now, but this is pretty pretty awful actually. And there's one story how the the person that eviscerated him died too from fever or something, or got like poisoned by by the blood, you know, of the of the king. But I think it was Henry the First. It's sort of amazing how you know there's a there there's such a, a moral connection with what happens to the body after death that there have to come up with all of these um, practical solutions. And um, from my understanding of your reading is that um, excarnation and um, boiling the dead bodies, burying the flesh nearby, and then transporting the bones back. Exactly. To... Yeah. So you basically you take what you first do you disembowel the corpse. Basically, what you do to an animal, it's the very same procedure you disembowel the corpse because that's the part that rots first and then uh taking the flesh off of course also helps and usually you don't want to transport these parts of the body because they really smell bad and all you need are the bones so so basically you can say the ideal in the medieval times was to, bone, to have the bones to bury the bones and not so much the soft parts 
from my understanding, and I think something that you said earlier, is that this is something that really becomes popular um, during the Crusades. Um, yes. At least with the aristocratic nobles. Yes, exactly. Uh, because it's quite, I mean, it's not so, he wouldn't transport uh, thousands of soldiers back to, to Central Europe, but you would, of course, transport back the king. And that actually didn't even happen all the time because Barbarossa, for example, Frederick Barbarossa's bones, they got lost. And um, nobody really knows where, I assume an acre, but um, you tried at least to get the very important people back in the form of bones to the homelands. And when somebody died closer, there was in a Christian territory, there was also the choice of storing them. You could temporarily bury them and have a process of uh, passive excarnation, which means basically rotting naturally. And then you will, after a few years, uh, dig them up and then bring the bones back. That was also an alternative, but of course not for crusaders that had died back in the Holy Land. Is, um, is that what charnel houses were for? No. Charnel oh. houses have a totally different history. The charnel houses basically developed, well, you have to go back to the Roman times, you know, when uh, you have you had these, these, these rules that nobody could be buried uh, with the living in the area of the living. You had this very strong segregation between the living and the dead. And then a Christianity basically broke with that principle and they, they, you started to build churches, sometimes on, on Roman graveyards, actually. Then you would have relics in the church, and then everybody, of course, wanted to be placed very close to those relics. And uh, the aristocrats and the you know, better people, in a way, they got close to the relics and were usually buried inside the church, and the simpler people then outside the church. So that's how the, the churchyards developed. And, and there, after a while, there was a space problem on these churchyards. So after a few years, you would basically dig people up and you would p put those bones into the charnel house. That's the charnel house tradition. I see. You, know. but you, will, you will not, sorry, you will not put aristocrats into a charnel house. For an aristocrat, actually, that would be highly improper. You were talking about sort of um, ideal versus um, reality. How does the church feel about this practice of excarnation and evisceration? Is it something that they're okay with? No, they were not. They banned it, actually. Um, Boniface VIII banned it twice. That actually created quite a problem because uh, the necessity was still there when it was banned in 1199 and 1200. So people started to develop alternative methods. And there is actually um, Emperor Henry VII, he died in Italy after that ban, and he could not be excarnated, he could not be cremated. And so what they did is they roasted him. And uh, there was actually his, his tomb was open in the 18th century and his bones were burned a little bit, but not burned enough to be for cremation, you know. So they tried to kind of like desiccate him over a fire. Oh my, I've never heard that story before, my goodness. I also have to ask about the people doing the excarnation and evisceration. Were they specialists or did they have any sort of training at all or... Was this just whoever was handy um, doing this sort of thing, handling these bodies? I think it was more or less learning by doing, you know. It was usually monks that um, did it in the Middle Ages. 
and uh, the priests, you know, yeah, not not doctors. The doctors only come in later, but not at that time. We haven't gotten to talk um, about uh, heart burials yet, and unfortunately, we're going to um, be going on a break in a minute or two. But could you say um, very simply a, a word or two about how heart burials start as a trend, and we can um, revisit the topic later? Yeah, just basically, you have to make a distinction between Western Europe and Central Europe. So in, in Western Europe, it's a tradition that starts in the 12th century, but in the in the in the Holy Roman Empire. It only was done in one place in that in the Middle Ages, which was in Würzburg, among the prince bishops of Würzburg, and then in the Holy Roman Empire. It's a tradition that starts really in the 17th century during the Counter-Reformation. So that uh, has a very, very different story, and there's big differences between the medieval heart burial and the Counter-Reformation heart burial. There's a lot of um, very interesting um, sort of things that happen in the Counter-Reformation. At CM Medieval Radio here, we posted up an article a while back on um, how some of the bodies were decorated and bejeweled uh, in the Counter-Reformation, for instance. The catacomb saints. Yes. How about we take a short break for now, and then we'll um, revisit the topic later in the interview. That sound good to you? Yeah, that sounds great. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Chris Milke, your host of Past Perfect, and we're joined today by Dr. Stella Weiskreci. And um, uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, today. And um, during the break, uh, there was something that you wanted to say to the audience, yeah? Yeah, I wanted to correct the date because I said that Pope Boniface VIII actually banned evisceration and excarnation. Uh, and it was the correct date is 1299, and then he did it again in 1300. Actually, got it wrong by 100 years, so I'm sorry, because I was thinking about Frederick Barbarossa, who died in 1190, and that got me confused. So, uh, No worries, these sort of things happen all the time. In this particular section, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, some of the comparative work that you've done um between, you know, nobles in um, medieval Europe and uh, the Maya. I mean, this is something that I find really, really interesting. And um, could you just uh, start uh, telling us a little bit about some of the the research that you've done on that? As I said at the beginning, I originally did an analysis of Maya burials, and that's kind of like created my interest in medieval burials. In the Maya area, they're very interesting burials. You have all these burial vaults and burial crypts with many bodies in there, and like adults, children, and very richly equipped burials. And Mayanists, at least in the old literature, always um, interpreted these burials as uh, retainer burials. So like, like you have a male king, you know, and then everybody else is a human sacrifice. And I never really liked that idea so much because um, I thought, well, uh, we have these types of burials in other parts of the world and there they are not, they're not sacrifices. And also there was no real evidence in most cases for violence, death or anything. So I always thought that they were just like, reusing the crypt, you know, they were kind of like collective, multiple burials. So what I thought was a much more likely idea was that they were basically just reusing those tombs, just entering them and then putting in new bodies and while doing that, disturbing some of the older bodies, as we know that from many parts of the world. 
And I thought it might be interesting to do some cross-cultural analysis, to use some other data set and, and look at patterns there and then directly compare them. That's how I started analyzing the Babenberg dynasty tombs and the Habsburg tombs. I looked at older data, older uh, drawings actually from the 18th century, and uh, and then also got all the information when people were buried, how often they were reburied, and, and that created some patterns that I could directly compare with some of the data from the Maya area. Definitely really do want to get on the um, the Habsburg and Babenberg burials because, I mean, the fact that we have these, um, these drawings of the positions of the bodies from the uh, 1700s is really, I, I find it just really, really amazing. But um, for, the, for the Mayan burial vaults, I mean, do we have any um, evidence available from the archaeological record of this uh, reuse? I mean, are these um, used over, um, I'd imagine, centuries? Yeah, yeah, they are. I mean, in the meantime, I have to say this uh, research that I did was based on much older research that had been done uh, decades ago. So in the meantime, now in the last 10 years, and even before, there have been a lot of people now. There's very good physical anthropology now. So we know everything much better and the, and the picture becomes much more refined, you know. So there is, of course, in the meantime, a lot of evidence for reuse of tombs. And uh, there's a lot of different things going on. It's not like not one pattern. And that's not the case either in the Habsburg dynasties. A lot of different things happen to different tombs. And that's important to keep in mind when you look at them. It's not one single thing. People are doing different things at different times. One thing I thought was very interesting I was a, a specific phenomenon that I discovered in the Habsburg tombs and that I also had discovered in the Maya area is uh, placing children at the entrance. So there was this one tomb in the highlands of Guatemala, Zaculeo, which was from the early classics, so from the 4th to the 6th century, more or less, with a bunch of people in there. And then at the entrance, there was a child burial from the 7th century, and uh, that was placed with a very nice um, vase, you know, polychrome vase. And that, that burial always had uh, been interpreted as a human sacrifice. And interestingly, in the, in the Habsburg dynasty, you have several of these tombs, where they put the children, because what happened is they were traveling a lot, and uh, when the children died, they would not transport them home. So they would look for the next available tomb, and then sometimes they opened older tombs, and then they just put the children in the area of the entrance. And then you also get this difference in time of several hundred years, of course. Is there any sort of spiritual significance, perhaps, about putting the children at the entrance? Or, in, in your opinion, do you think it's something that's just more practical in nature? For the Maya, I cannot say. because, um, But for the Habsburgs, I think it was very practical because they just put them where there was space. And usually the tomb was already full. And uh, then the only place where there was enough space to put a coffin was the area of the entrance. So they... They just put them there. So you enter the tomb, and right there, you put the children. 
the interesting thing to think about in terms of um, medieval and early modern and even some modern burials is the fact that there are definite fashions that can be detected for lots of places in medieval Europe in the 12th and you know early 13th century it's very fashionable be, to be buried at a um, Cistercian monastic foundation in the late 13th and 14th century it's very fashionable to be married at a at a mendicant order like the the Franciscans or the Dominicans and then are these sorts of patterns um, repeated in the Austrian cases yeah, there are definitely fashions. But when you said fashion, I was actually just thinking of hard burial again, because that actually, I think, is a fashion too, to have your heart taken out. And uh, especially in the English case, actually, in the, in the 12th and 13th and 14th century, I think of it as a fashion. And, um, and it was not done. And uh, I actually used that word in one of my articles, even, that I said it, I consider it a fashion. And how it spread, I think, was through uh, women, because uh, in England, women were also eviscerated, and the children, too, in the Middle Ages. And in the very few examples that we have from, from the Holy Roman Empire, it was usually unmarried males, you know, adults. And so there was no way for this custom to spread, because there was no family to spread it through spread it with and in England it was a family affair basically and it spread very quickly like fashion. How interesting and and why do heart burials become fashionable? Is, is there any particular reason behind it? Well there's actually uh, for, for England it's not my research that's Daniel Westerhoff's research and she's written about it uh, that uh, it was usually uh, promoting a newly founded like new orders like Dominicans, for example. So you will put your heart with the newer orders, whereas your body goes with the older ones, you know. And I know that this happens again during the time of Counter-Reformation in Europe in the 17th century. It's where the hearts are buried with the Counter-Reformation orders. So the first ones actually that receive hearts are the Jesuits for a very short time period. And so these, these new orders, they come in and they cannot have the bodies of people. They can only have parts of bodies, you know, because the bodies already go to, to the older orders that are there already. Well, since we're talking about things that are fashionable, you know, what, what um, you know comes to mind is that the fact that there's a sort of reverse of the coin and something that's uh, unfashionable. And that made me think of um, one of the articles you had uh, written on um, deviant burial, specifically focusing on the Habsburg and Babenberg dynasties. So based off of your research, what qualifies um, someone as a, as a deviant in terms of their burial? Well, actually, I, I don't think I really used, did I use the term, but I think I only used it in, in parentheses, you know, because I don't really like it. Oh, fair and enough. I, I have a colleague here, Edeltrud Asberg, who did her research also on deviant burials, and she also doesn't like that term because it uh, basically creates the image of a dichotomy, you know, like there's a good burials, you know, or there's the normal burials and there's the deviant burials and there's nothing else in between, which is totally not true. So I, I, Edeltraud basically sees it more like a, like a scale, you know, like you have the very proper ones and then anything can happen in between and then you have very improper burials. And I have a slightly different uh, idea. I see like there is a, 
a big var- variability of what we would call the norm. And there's a few burials that are really improper, you know. So I don't see them all as like gradually um, um, emerging, like gradually um, from one end to the other. But anyway, so I, I really don't like deviants at all. But I what's, see. what's there is there are some burials that are different, let's say, and that are meant to be different on purpose. And people are treated differently, specifically, either to punish them, you know, that has happened and it does happen, you know, like you, you cremate the heretic yeah, on purpose to destroy his soul so he cannot be resurrected. And you, uh, for example, do other things to bodies. Uh, in the in the context of that article you are referring to, I was talking, I can't remember exactly which specific aspect you are, you are referring to because I was talking about a whole range of, of different kinds of burials there. All right, I remember one actually, the Protestant. So the Habsburg dynasty is Catholic, you know, and so... In the Habsburg dynasty, of course, a Protestant, and it was only one because everybody else converted. But this woman, she did not want to convert. And uh, so she, was, she wasn't she was able to be buried with the rest of the dynasty. Actually, she her body was because the emperor made a strong point. He wanted her body to be buried, but her heart and intestines couldn't be buried where they were supposed to be buried. So they were all buried with her body. And that was not the norm, because usually the hearts would go to one church and the intestines would go to another and the body would be buried in a, in a third church. And in her case, because of her confession, it was not possible. But I wouldn't call it deviant, you know, because I really don't like the word. There's definitely something different about it, but um, I think I would make a difference between something like that. And I think in that article you do. I mean, I at the at the time I read it, which was admittedly a few years ago, I was interested in um, noble women who had died in childbirth, and there's no real clear pattern for anything uh, that that happened to them. No, uh, they were treated just the same as everybody else. Yeah. Just, just regularly. At the time, the question I was interested in um, answering is, you know, there, there, it was in relation to two queens who died, and it was talking about one, one of the other sources I was reading was trying to argue that these two queens died in childbirth and were buried at foundations they themselves chose. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's really, really difficult to, you know, obviously tell, um, especially when things like that uh, aren't written down. But I think even with such a, a heap of data, you were talking earlier about the spreadsheet, and I was just amazed that you were able to compile data for over 900 different burials, which is, is a feat in and of itself. I think, you know, at the same time, working with uh, so much data, it, it can be hard to trace patterns when the circumstances can be so exceptional. But it was possible. I was pretty amazed. I was actually amazed that it was possible. But uh, just to just to clarify, uh, I, what I was trying to um, to see there was whether the cause of death actually created a different burial pattern. And uh, the result was that the cause of death with the queens they had decided anyway to be buried where they were buried in the end that has not had nothing to do with the way how they died. Whereas in the case of specific diseases, for example, or uh, violent deaths, sometimes there was actually a direct influence. So somebody was buried in a different way because of the way he had he or she had died. And for example, when somebody died from the plague or 
they, these people were buried or treated differently because of the death. So hadn't the death occurred in that way, they would have been treated differently. And that's a very, very important point, actually. So the cause of death can be a reason why you're not uh, treated the way you should be treated. And with virulent infections like tuberculosis or smallpox or the plague, it's definitely much more pragmatic for the living to bury the bodies quickly. Yeah, no, actually with the tuberculosis, they didn't really know. But uh, but with the plague, yeah, when they suspected the plague, they, of course, would not care whether that was the king. You know, they would just deal with him <laughs> yeah. in, in the same way. You know, yeah, the smallpox, actually, uh, I don't think that it really created a different pattern. But the plague, yeah, there was one case where somebody was suspected to have died from the plague. And that person was actually put in a plague pit, supposedly. It's a medieval, it's not, their record wasn't really that good for that one. We will have to take a short break, uh, but we will be back momentarily. Please enjoy the music. Welcome back. Uh, this is Chris Milkey, and joining us today is Dr. Estella Weiskrechi. So uh, thank you very much for uh, coming and being our guest today. You mentioned uh, earlier that you were interested in uh, what happens to the medieval bodies in the later centuries the afterlife of the of the corpse, if you will. And um, I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit, for instance, about what happened with the Habsburg crypts at a place in Switzerland called Königsfelden. Yeah, uh, actually, that's a quite an interesting story because it uh, shows you how bodies are tied to politics. And what I observed very often is that when uh, dynasties lose territories, they actually start moving the bodies and in this particular case, it was not the Habsburg dynasty themselves that started to move the bodies, but it was monks, you know. And uh, they had founded a new monastery in the Black Forest, the monastery of St. Blasian. And there were all these Habsburgs still in Switzerland, because, of course, the Habsburgs are a Swiss, originally a Swiss house. That's where they came from. And uh, they were there for ten, 10 generations before in the... 1273, Rudolf from Habsburg was actually elected German Roman king. So there were about um, 14 bodies out there in Switzerland that had been buried between the 13th and the 14th century, and 11 of those were at Königsfelden, and the other three were in Basel Cathedral. So these monks, they opened the crypts and actually they, they drew the, the bodies, and actually some artists drew the bodies, and that's why we can actually look at the engravings today and, and they're really marvelous, you know. They show you how these these coffins looked like and how destroyed they were already and where exactly these, these crypts were because most of them, of course, some of them actually don't exist anymore. And so they exhumed the bodies and brought them all to St. Blasian. Unfortunately, uh, St. Blasian in the Black Forest at that time still, which was the 18th century, I think it happened in 1770, was still Austrian territory, but uh, then uh, very soon was lost. Also during the, I think it was in the beginning of the, the 19th century uh, during the Napoleonic Wars. And uh, then, of course, uh, after they had lost St. Blasian, they had to move all these bodies again and they brought them to Austria. So they were traveling around a lot, these bodies. My understanding is that they're now in... Um what is it, St. Paul? Car yeah, St. Paul in Carinthia, in the Lavantal, yeah, in Carinthia. That's where they are today. 
I just find it so interesting how these bodies from the Middle Ages, um, which have been dead for, you know, centuries at this point, still carry such powerful meaning that, you know, they're, they need to be transported from place to place to place, uh, depending on, you know, the current political situation. At the same time, you know, this is a case where, for instance, at the bodies at Königsfelden, there is a certain amount of reverence for the ancestors of the then ruling Habsburg dynasty. And I also have to ask, is there a case of Damnatio Memoriae, where in later centuries, bodies of people from the Middle Ages were intentionally destroyed for um, whatever reason? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, you have that a lot, actually, that uh, the bodies are really purposefully uh, exhumed and uh, beaten and, uh, and destroyed. And that actually, of course, happened during the French Revolution when uh, the, all the bodies from Saint-Denis were exhumed and thrown into pits, you know, at the north side of the abbey and desecrated, basically. So you can see these desecrations are coming up. Whenever politics change, you will see desecrations of bodies, and then when the politics change again, these bodies will get reburied, and that's not something that that only applies to royal bodies, you know, that applies to every political body, anybody who has been politically important or symbolizes politics, you know, a specific uh, branch of politics is um, a potential can be a potential victim for desecration. Just look what has happened in the in the 1990s in the Eastern Europe, how all the bodies, you know, that were associated with uh, socialism disappeared, and all the older bodies that were associated with the times before reappeared, you know. And as Catherine Verdery's very interesting book, The Political Lives of Dead Bodies, that talks about that. And this process actually. I read that book and I thought it fascinating and I've used it a lot now to to also deal with other types of bodies. I've used it to explain some, some stuff that's going on in the Maya area and in, in medieval Europe. It, it keeps happening, you know, that, that doesn't change. For the cases for hung- Hungary and Byzantium, um, it's unfortunate that you know a lot of the, discre- the destruction occurred before there was a systematic um, attempt to record them. So, for instance, um, in Hungary, the basilica at Székesfehérvár was again it would vary in fashion. Like in the 12th century, it was very fashionable for the kings and princes and uh, queens to be buried there. 13th century, not so much. 14th century, it becomes fashionable again. And then when the Ottoman uh, Turks invade in the 16th century, a lot of the um, basilica was destroyed in that um, period. And um, in the 19th century, there were systematic excavations that took place there. Some, you know, some parts of it better than others. But um, recently in... um, in 2008, there was a Hungarian publication. It was a physical anthropology report of um, some of the bodies that were buried there. I think there were about a thousand different uh, individuals, roughly, that were found buried at this one basilica. And um, it was a um, anthropological study of the bodies from the 12th crypts. And um, based off of the uh, age and the sex and um, roughly the um, the era that the bodies were from, you know, there have been actually suggestions that um, the skeleton from crypt number one dash X or you know one dash five um, might be might be the bones of a certain king or something like that. So 
even if the monuments can't be recovered, there's you know still a lot of research left to be done, in my opinion, at least. Oh yeah, this, this is very interesting now because now we have finally the tools, you know, the methodology to do it because that's so, I mean, now with all these isotopic studies, you know, and, and DNA studies really, really evolving very quickly, uh, there's tremendous new fields are open now and uh, questions to answer that couldn't be answered 10 years ago. So that's quite fascinating, and I'm following that, actually. And there's some stuff going on in Austria with the Babenberg dynasty. There's a team in Innsbruck that has been doing some research with uh, bones from close to Neuburg Monastery. These results also show you always have to, to listen also to, you have to read the history and you have to think about other possibilities. You cannot only look at, at, um, at your results from the DNA. You may get it wrong too when you do it, when you don't integrate all the data that you have. It, it is sort of um, disconcerting when, you know, you have all of these texts that say one thing and then you have um, an excavation or a, um, a strontium analysis that tells you something different. And trying to find ways to reconcile the two differing sets of data can be a little tricky at times. Well, you also need, you also need physical anthropology still, and that's sometimes left out. That's what I'm afraid. You know, sometimes you have the history on the one side and then on the other side you have the, the strontium or the DNA, whatever you know, and there's no physical anthropology done on the bones, and that, and then when you do that, that's a problem, and I've seen that happening. That seems like such an auto mission, in my opinion. I mean, it seems sort of natural if you're looking at bones that you'd want to be able to say something about the bones in its entirety, rather than looking at you know one particular point of data, however important it may be. Yeah, but uh, that's actually happening now, and I'm not so happy about this development. Uh, maybe it will change again. Uh, well, I hope so. That do that doesn't seem like a very sort of wise direction to go to, in my opinion. But, uh, well, no one asked me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, continuing on with the sort of afterlife of uh, medieval bodies and uh, medieval burials. Um, again, speaking from my own um, experience, one of the um, things I have uh, found in my dissertation was there was one, um, one 11th century Hungarian queen. She made a donation of a very impressive reliquary cross to the Abbey of um, St. Blasian in the Black Forest that you mentioned earlier. And uh, ironically, over time, um, she made it as a memorial for her mother, originally, but um, over time in the uh, annals of uh, the monks at the Abbey, uh, it became less important that it was a memorial for this one um, German noblewoman, and it became more important that it was a gift from the Queen of Hungary. I mean, wow. Between like the 12th century history and the 16th century history of the Abbey, you, you get a bit of a disparity in terms of the importance of the Queen um, versus the importance of uh, who the cross was a memorial for. I also have to ask, you know, do you see any sort of uh, pattern similar to that where in the later centuries, like certain things are emphasized more or certain things are more important than uh, uh, when um, the person originally died? Uh, well, uh, quite interestingly, uh, when you get exhumations, it's, it's, it's a bit selective, let's say. Uh, for example, uh, Philip II in the 16th century, when he founded El Escorial in Spain, and then he actually uh, was exhuming ancestors, you know, to bring them, like a family, basically, um, aunts, uncles, nephews, whatever, and also his parents and uh, grandparents. 
then he he left a few people out, you know. He didn't bring everybody to Ellis Corial. So he basically created a a new line, you know, starting with um, Charles V, you know, and uh, and but he left all the other people that came before at Granada. Charles V was of course in Houston, but his his wife had been in Escorial, so actually they got yeah, the family. It was kind of like selective, you know, in that he collected uh, his ancestors, and that basically uh, a few people actually were not uh, buried there. For example, Mary Tudor, who had also been uh, married to to Philip, she was of course not brought to Escorial, but she was left in West, Westminster Abbey in London. So, so Charles V was brought to Ellis Corial, but not from Granada, but from from Uste. So that's the difference here. In terms of Mary Tudor not being buried at Ellis Corial, there's also a bunch of other different reasons, you know, why or why not the selection process occurred, and a lot of different things to think about. I do think it's interesting, though, with them, the uh, Ellis Corial, which, if I ever go to Spain, um, is definitely going to be one of the first things I make sure to see. It, it does seem like there is something of a break with the past, like, you know, this is something new. From my limited understanding, the um, the Kapuzener church in Vienna becomes. I'm not sure it was originally intended that way, but it definitely becomes. No, yeah, that's actually. Let me just go on the Ellis, Ellis Corial just quickly so we get sure. the story right. So, sure. so the parents of Charles V, you know, and Eleanor, kind of. Anyway, Charles V is the father, and the grandparents, yeah, the mm-hmm. grandparents are Philip the Fair and Joanna the Mad, and they are buried at Granada, and they are left in Granada. So he will not bring, Philip II will not bring his grandparents to El Escorial, you know, which are actually also very important because they are actually where the House of Habsburg and the House of Trastamara form, you know, like where they join. But he will be selective. He chooses the next generation. And that's where he starts, you know, and that's kind of like creating a new ancestral tree there. And so this is, this is the true story. And the Capuchin crypt is also interesting because it was founded by uh, King Matthias and Queen Anna, and it was originally meant to be for those two people only. And uh, what had happened is that uh, at that time, actually, Vienna was not such an important place when that happened because uh, Matthias and Anna, they didn't have offspring. And uh, they kind of like founded this. They were not even buried there because it was not ready yet. They were only transferred there much later after death, you know, at the beginning of the 17th century. But for some dynastic reason, because of, you know, like lines dying out and the court had moved to Graz, but then the, the Styrian line inherited the throne. And then, of course, had to move court to Vienna. And that's how suddenly they started to use this script, you know, and enlarged the script over the centuries, and it was never meant to be that, what it actually became over the centuries. For now, we'll take a very short break, um, but we'll be back uh, in a moment with the conclusion of the show. Welcome back. Uh, this is Chris, and um, we've had a very good uh, interview today with uh, Dr. Stella Weiskrichsi, um, and um, thank you so much for joining, because it's really been a lot of fun to talk to you. Thanks to you, too. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, well, I'm glad to hear that. And uh, before the end of the show, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, some of the more uh, recent research that you've been up to lately. Well, on the one hand, I've 
been still doing research in the Maya area. I'm actually uh, excavating, I have been excavating a, a water reservoir, a Maya water reservoir, which is uh, has nothing to do with dead bodies. There are no dead bodies in there. But on the other hand, I also became very interested in a repatriation of human remains. You know, that's a very um, important topic because there's a, a, there are a lot of current claims to dead bodies that are in different uh, European museums. And I actually um, attended, two years ago, I attended a repatriation ceremony in Vienna. There was uh, where several human remains were given back to Australia. And I also started to... Uh, investigate a little bit uh, the political, the politics of these repatriations, because I'm always interested in dead body politics. And uh, I, I looked at um, at the ceremonies, and uh, this one ceremony I attended, and then there was another second ceremony last year that was a repatriation to South Africa. And I, I got the story mostly through interviews with people and through the internet, and I compared these two ceremonies with each other because I thought they really reflected very much the political background for the repatriations. And it told you a lot about the identity politics of those of those nations, actually, that, that were claiming the bodies. And, and this is a really, really big topic, because this repatriation is now going on all over Europe. And I've um, actually participated in several uh, workshops and conferences on it. So this was something I've been doing over the last two, three years, basically. I definitely think it's very important and a very timely sort of thing to do that. I mean, these um, these skeletons and whatnot that were collected as, you know, part of Oddities collection or uh, sort of curiosities in the 18th and 19th centuries, they were people. You have to understand it also from the perspective of the history of research. It was just like evolution just had been uh, like accepted, you know, as, as a scientific fact, you know. And then people, of course, were trying to, to gather evidence to prove that, you know, it has happened or how it has happened, you know. And that's basically how it started. But then, of course, it became a business, you know. Many of these, uh, these bones were commodities and, mm -hmm. and uh, they were sold, so that the issue of the human body as a commodity actually has started to interest me a lot. And that, uh, that's also how I became more and more interested in, in economics, you know, how can, how can a human body be a commodity? Uh, what can I say, Dr. Weisskretschi? It's been a really interesting uh, conversation and um, we thank you very much for being a guest on our show today. Thank you very much. <laughs> Alrighty, and for the listeners back home, as always, be sure to visit us on the web at medievalradio.org. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, be sure to send us an email to medievalradio at ceu.hu, and be sure to like us on Facebook as well. From all of us here, we thank you very much for listening. Take care, and goodbye.